Let's talk about the future of news. I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. The state of journalism today. Telling both sides of a, of a controversial story. I think we must be unbiased. It's uh, honesty, fairness, uh, truth. That is our job. That is our job. That is our job. Welcome once more to the Arrowman in Stockholm podcast. My name is Philip O'Connor and you can support this podcast and the other journalism that I do over at patreon.com forward slash Arrowman in Stockholm. Um, this week's guest is uh, kind of a fascinating guy. I always wondered why I'd never met him, right? He's somebody that I know through the mixed martial arts sphere, the boxing sphere, the combat sports sphere. And though I've worked alongside P.T. Carroll, Niall McGrath, and I've met Ariel Helwani and Chuck Mindenhall and all these guys that everybody who follows the sport would know, I'd never met Karim Zidane and I wondered why. Karim is a journalist who works at the intersection of sport and politics and has written a lot about current UFC lightweight champion Khabib Nurmagomedov and the various dealings that he has with uh, leaders and dictators in, uh, well, let's call it loosely, the Muslim world, right, from Turkey on east. And uh, I only found out recently that the reason that I haven't met Karim at any of these events is because it's not usually safe for him to be there. Uh, that led to a conversation with him about whether or not he would like to talk about his life on this podcast. Uh, so I started off by asking about what it's like to live life looking over your shoulder. Karim Zidane, I was reading one of your articles the other day and I was wondering why I hadn't met you in person before because, you know, our areas of interest in terms of MMA and combat sports overlap somewhat. And I realised that the reason that we haven't met in person is because you don't really feel safe attending certain sporting events. Could you explain to me why that is? Uh, unfortunately, it's it's uh, primarily due to the the kind of work that I write. I I upset so many people with uh, the content I do, whether it be billionaires uh, covering this, uh, like investing in mixed martial arts, whether it be dictators using uh, sports for political gain, or just certain fan groups. It's come to a point where several of the organizations I've worked for and do different work. Because I mean, I work for multiple outlets, but several of them including the ones I work for the most, like Vox Media, have deemed me a liability in the sense that I am not safe to have present at any events where it will be publicly clear that I am available there. For instance, the recent MMA awards show in Las Vegas was an example of that. While I was able to attend the event in the very first year, as I continue to write more about characters like uh, Ramzan Kadyrov of Chechnya and uh, Putin and others and so on, it became a lot more of a risk based on the threats that I would receive. Uh, a security firm working with Vox Media deemed that it was best that I do not go to places like Russia and that I am very careful about uh, geolocating myself in, on social media, basically never stating where I am at the time I am, and not attending events where, I, where people would be aware well in advance that I am there. For instance, MMA events in Russia. MMA events even in some places in the United States because it's not necessarily about just being there at the time of the event. It's beforehand, it's afterwards, it's what could happen at these different moments. So from the way I understand it, it's primarily a caution rather than a direct threat. But these are the steps that we have to take sometimes, unfortunately, just to stay safe. Um, the reason your journalism has stuck out to me uh, in terms of the MMA beat is the fact that you write about these very people. You write about the Caucasus. You write about the way that you know dictators and regimes in the Middle East uh, are using sports to sort of you know to whitewash their reputations. Could I ask you about your own background, where you're from, and where the interest in this subject comes from? 
Yeah, I actually appreciate that question, Philip, because it's so rare that people ask why I write about this or what, what uh, my background is that's led me to this sort of uh, uh, intersection. And to be honest, it is very, very significant. I grew up, I'm an Egyptian uh, by blood, and I, I grew up in Egypt, and I also grew up in Bahrain and in Saudi Arabia. So I've spent time in all three of those countries, and one of them still is a military dictatorship. The other two are monarchies with horrible human rights atrocities to their name. So <laughs> my track record for the places I've lived until I was 18 has not been uh, fantastic in terms of the political scene. So naturally, that had an impact on me. I'll give you, I'll give you a very a small example. In Egypt, around when I was 15, 16, I got really, really into watching football. And by football for the American audience, I'm referring to soccer here. And one of the things I would love doing was attending Egypt's Al Ahli games, because I'm, I'm a supporter of the Al Ahli Football Club, which is Egypt's biggest uh, football club. And the Ahli, the Al Ahli Football Club had, at the time, the ultras were still very significant, which is the football fan groups and the seen some places as hooligans. But in Egypt, they were a very politically strong unit who opposed uh, Mubarak's authoritarianism and his police force at the time. So the only fights they ever got into were with the police. And I got to see, I actually got to attend events and, and, and matches at the time, sitting amongst the ultras in what was called in the Cairo Stadium, Tel Tashmer, which is the third section on the left which is a section dedicated to the ultras. And from there, from my seat, I got to see how the sort of the unity amongst the people. And at the same time, I got to see what the police were doing. So they were just picking people out of the crowd for no good reason. The person could just be shouting or you know, chanting or something. They'd pick them out of the crowd and using their batons, they'd start beating on them. And I saw this with my own eyes as a 15-year-old, 16-year-old. And this became common occurrence at the time. So it was very clear to me that there's something more to this. They're, they're not watching football just for the sake of football. They're telling a story about what's going on in their sociopolitical landscape. They're talking about their problems, confrontations with authoritarianism, what it's like to live under a dictatorship where your only hope is the chance for a football team. It's the only thing that gives you a sense of freedom. It's, it's the unity amongst these youth groups, these organized youth groups that were terrifying the government. Mubarak's regime was terrified of uh, the ultras. And rightfully so, they became extremely significant during the revolution because it was the only youth group that had had any experience combating the police. So during the time of the revolution on the streets, they were essential. Like there are many, many people uh, uh, later on to be the first Egyptian uh, female presidential candidate, Busseina Kamal, said that she, she owes her life to the ultras because she would never have escaped some of those streets and some of the chaos going on had they not guided her through the correct alleys, through the correct neighborhoods at the time. That's how significant these groups are. That's how clear the intersection of sports and politics and culture was to me from the very start. There was never, there was never a hope of escaping this. So when I moved to Canada and got introduced to the UFC, it was only a matter of time before I fell into this intersection. It truly was. Uh, it's fascinating because your experience at Al-Ahli has been reflected uh, in the Balkans in the early 90s uh, and in football stadia around the world. If you go back to Argentina in the late 1970s, mm -hmm. if you go back to Socrates in Brazil and his political activism at Flamengo, um, we, you know, I've just come back from the Women's World Cup in France. Is it ever possible to separate politics from sport at the highest level? Because it would seem to me from your work that you know, sport at the highest level is ultimately a political act. I absolutely believe that there is no way you can separate politics from any aspect of one's life in the first place, let alone sports. And when you consider the worldwide and global impact that sports have, the, this, the, the, the tangible impact, the, the, the qualitative and quantitative 
uh, changes and influence and inspiration that comes through sports, you, you begin to understand how many people can use it as a sort of inspiration. Like, for instance, uh, you, the average people watching a game of football, they'll watch the Women's World Cup, for instance, and there's a whole new generation of, of, of girls and women out there who believe that they can do this and they'll actually have a future in this and will have an opportunity to make good money. But on the other end of the spectrum, you have the politicians. You have all these uh, groups and politicians and, and, and businessmen who believe that this is an opportunity to rebrand themselves or to use use uh, sports as as uh, part of their political platform. I'll, I'll bring this back to Egypt again because this is ongoing as we speak. The African Cup of Nations is being hosted in Egypt right now. Mm -hmm. And Egypt is being dominated by an, an, a military dictatorship at the moment. There is no doubt that there is a massive correlation between Egypt, the Egyptian government's urgency to bring in the African Cup of Nations now and the idea that they want to use this as a platform to rebrand themselves on a world scale, that they are not authoritarians, that they are a fantastic, friendly area, tourism, full of tourism and full of life. That's the whole idea. It's rebranding uh, uh, your, your, your faults and completely sports washing, uh, to, to use that term that Amnesty International has done. It's, it's this idea of sports washing your entire regime and your country through these sports that people find so inspirational. And that's part of the problem. Uh, sorry, just to add this one more thing. Is yeah. this, it's, this is really part of the problem is that because so many people see sports as this sort of entertainment thing and inspirational and outside of the realm of, of their po of the political lives and what's going on in reality, it becomes uh, much more subliminal, the impact it has on them. So when they see events hosted in Saudi Arabia, they, they don't see the political side of this event. They see, oh, look, fantastic. Saudi Arabia, which used to be an ex extremely socially conservative place, is now hosting uh, sports events. They're now starting to let women into the stadium. Maybe things are actually changing. When the truth of the matter is nothing's changing, it's just smoke and mirrors yeah. to give you the idea that things are changing. It's just sort of reinforcing what is already going on there, you know. Um, Absolutely. If we look at that sort of a little bit closer, because uh, the, the rise of Qatar, so to speak, I remember several years ago, I obviously live in Stockholm in Sweden. I remember when teams started to, you know, like just local professional soccer teams, it would be like, this is the 26th most popular league in the world, so nobody cares about it. But teams started to go to places like Dubai and like Qatar and this kind of thing for their sort of midwinter training camps. And that seems to have led to a situation where, you know, it's kind of like boiling the frog if you throw a frog into boiling water it's just going to jump right out but here you know they've been heating up the water for a time you look at Barcelona Football Club they never had a sponsor on their jersey and then they realised that they wanted to have a sponsor on their jersey but to go from there to advertising Qatar on their jersey was too big a step so the first thing they did was they gave their jersey sponsorship to UNICEF because how can you fault that and then all of a sudden everybody mm -hmm. accepted that Barcelona had a logo on the front of their jersey and now it's Qatar and, and we bought into this Karim everybody's just gone yeah mm, okay Manchester City, Paris Saint-Germain, Barcelona, that, we're, we're all fine with that. Is it too late for us to, to stop this sports washing? Can we turn off the sports washing machine and, you know, sort of hang out our dirty laundry now, or is it too late for that? I'd like to be naive and, and say it's not too late. Unfortunately, I think we have normalized things so much, whether it be in football or whether it even be in martial arts, we've normalized it so much that it's become very, very dangerous. I, I don't see how we can now separate the influence of money from massive clubs in, in the Premier League, whether it's coming from the Middle East and whether it's coming from, from Russian billionaires. It's, 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 
very, very difficult with the way the, the, the markets are changing, the way the structures are changing now for us to step backward. And the problem is, is that even the media has come to accept it. It's only every once in a while that you do the token article saying, oh, is this a case of sports washing? But no one's doing the hardcore reporting to explain why this is detrimental, not just to the industry, but to our sociopolitical landscape as well. Because there is no true hard journalism on it. We might get the occasional article on The Guardian saying, well, uh, so-and-so race with the Bahraini team is sports washing for the kingdom itself. But we're not going into detail explaining how the kingdom of Bahrain is systematically uh, damaging its own people and how where sports falls into that, where the Formula One falls into that, where mixed martial arts falls into that. The problem is the lack of details. And, and, and unless that's why I've taken on the role or I believe my role is in the community, is to educate as much as possible, rather than uh, uh, whatever whatever the roles of journalists can be. Mine, I see my primary role as educating people, because a lot of people are not aware about the intersection of sports and politics. A lot of people don't see the damage a lot of it can cause. I get as many, as many trolls and as many haters as I get on Twitter, I get as many people saying, you have taught me something new, you have inspired me to think about these intersections in a different way and how to think about it in terms of culture overall and the art scene and literature and it expands and so on that's the thing with political with politics it's completely intertwined with every aspect of our lives but it's not described enough and it's not talked about enough so when we see a few articles or we see this idea of this this the influence of, of of money from the middle east in in the premier league or in other or in barcelona or wherever it may be we just go eh. How bad can it really be? Are the players really that bad for doing this? Is the team really that bad? Or here's the worst reaction. I just care about the football or I just care about the fights. I don't really care about what happens outside of that. That's a very privileged position to take, Philip. It's a very, very privileged position because only people who know that they will never be impacted by the political outcome are, are able to say things like that. That's why you rarely hear it in the U.S. from minorities for instance, in the U.S., because they know every political step taken is going to impact them. It's not going to impact the majority of Americans. It's going to impact the minority groups in America. This is the same case everywhere around the world. If you live in a dictatorship, you understand what it means. You understand exactly what it means for your government to use an event or a sports event, an Olympics or whatever, for state prestige. You understand the damage it's about to cost you. You understand that the whole world is being distracted while subsidies are being removed from your country, while in the case of Putin, pension, uh, the age of pension is going up. Every, it, it, it's a horrific experience for the people who actually live in it. Yet on the outside, people who just want to watch the Olympics or just want to watch the World Cup as a global audience, couldn't care less. Mm. And that's the most damaging part. We have normalized the stuff. I think it's fascinating to see as well uh, your point there about minorities. If we look at Colin Kaepernick, the, the American football quarterback, he took a knee and now he has no career to speak of. But Megan mm-hmm. Rapinoe, who has done a similar thing and now she's being sort of heralded all over the world and somehow, you know, it's just not sticking to her at all. You know, she's won the World Cup with the women's team. And, you know, I'm backing Megan Rapinoe 100%, out gay woman the whole lot. But, you know, the fact that she's a white American seems to mean that, you know, she can turn down um, an invitation to the White House and it's just, okay, she gets her fair share of abuse but it's absolutely nothing compared to what Kaepernick got when he stood up Uh, I'd just like to go back to your point there about uh, what you feel your purpose is I mean your purpose to me is to lift the stone and shine the light under there and I think you've done that in a fascinating way Um, we have a tendency in the West to see and now in inverted commas I'm going to use the term the Muslim world right stretching from Mm -hmm. Algeria and Egypt all the way through Iran and you know sort of you know further and further and further east Um, but you've been very very like I mean the excellence in your report 
reporting is joining the dots between Dagestan and Moscow and Qatar and all these different places. Could you just uh, describe for me a little bit about the figure Khabib Nurmagomedov? Because you wrote an excellent <laughs> and very in-depth piece about him, his agent, and what he is being used for. And I suppose the question I could start with asking is, um, is he aware that he is being used for sports washing? Does he care or is this something that he too believes in? That's a quite a difficult question, and I have to stress that I I can only go by the assumptions based on my experience with Khabib and my experience reporting on him. Again, it cannot be taken as fact, especially when I'm talking about how he feels or how he might feel. I can I, I'm I'm basically going to be joining the dots here again from how I've understood it so far. The way I see it is I don't I truly truly do not think he understands how badly he's being used as a tool for sports washing. That is my belief. I believe that when he meets Erdogan, when he meets and sits down with Putin, and when he sits down with all these other leaders, Kadyrov will get into separately in a second. But uh, when he went on this sort of political victory tour right after defeating McGregor and meeting with all these world leaders, I think the idea for Khabib is this personal goal of, 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 of pushing Dagestan and Dagestanis as far as possible. So I, see, I believe he does see himself definitely as a representative and as an influential figure within his republic, as probably the most famous uh, uh, person, really, from the North Caucasus, uh, especially as an athlete. So he understands that he embodies that, which is why he feels the need to also be uh, to police certain things in Dagestan. So this, to me, explains exactly why he felt the need to speak out against, uh, I think his first time he spoke out was against a case of police brutality in Dagestan. And then, it, then we got into some much more difficult uh, situations. For instance, he did not enjoy nudity at a, at a specific play that was put on. It wasn't even true nudity. We're talking about lingerie. And he was very upset with that in Dagestan. The problem is how he incites uh, hatred and, and, and rioting from, from people. Because he would put on a statement on Instagram, and then suddenly <laughs> you have people who follow Khabib, who love Khabib, who just you know, want to back Khabib threatening these producers and directors, sending them death threats, telling them, get the hell out of here. This has happened more than once. There's been, there have been rappers who hosted events in Dagestan who now cannot go back to Dagestan because they were threatened with either rape or murder. And that's, that's a horrific thing to do. And Khabib has to know that he wields that sort of power. But he chooses to, to use it in specific cases because he feels very strongly about them. So he probably does see himself as an extremely pious Muslim and, and believes that Dagestan has to have a very specific uh, uh, system. But that's, that's imposing your, your authoritarian will as well on people, just in a very different way. So it's, it's, it's very troubling watching Khabib in action because he does feel like a very, very complex character. He's not black and white. He's very much in the gray, in the gray area. So he's not aware of his sports washing. But at the same time, he cannot not know what he is doing when he meets with Kadyrov because the tension between Chechnya and Dagestan is so significant and it's a historic rivalry. This is not a new thing, and it's not just a rivalry, but they are so uh, culturally contrary and separate to each other. Because people seem to think, and I've seen people mix this up all the time, saying Khabib comes from the same republic as Kadyrov. What utter nonsense. Like, if you cannot distinguish between Dagestan and Chechnya, you might as well call it all Russia at that point. Because there's, there's such an extreme difference between the two. From the languages, from the people who are in the different regions. The Chechens come from the Vainach ancestry, which the Dagestanis don't come from at all. As a matter of fact, there might be 30 different ethnicities within Dagestan and, and even more languages and dialects within Dagestan as well. Khabib happens to come from the biggest, the majority 
the majority group in Dagestan who are the Avars. So he is, he's, even his background in Dagestan is very significant. His father, uh, Abdel Manap, likes to claim that Khabib's great-grandfather uh, was part of uh, Sha Imam Shamil's army. And Imam Shamil was the famous uh, uh, warlord who rose up against uh, Russian uh, colonialism back in the day. So these are all significant figures. And, and, and Khabib, again, tries to embody all of this at once. But when it comes to Chechnya, the idea that he goes and sits down with Kadyrov repeatedly like this, unless he's thinking that he is going to be the peacemaker between the two of them, how can he not realize that Kadyrov is simply using him to get more land out of Dagestan, to use him just to rebrand himself? He's hanging out with him. Kadyrov had years to spend time with Khabib. He invited Khabib. In the first five years he knew him, or four years, twice, to Chechnya, twice. And, and, the, and both times were to sort of train people at the Ahmed uh, MMA facility and hold sort of a seminar. And that was really about it. But ever since Khabib won that title and became one of the most popular Muslim athletes on the planet, because that's a significant thing, the only person probably more significant than him is Mohamed Salah mm -hmm. of Liverpool. But uh, and that's, a big, that's a big, big deal. So Kadyrov hanging out with him not only helps rebrand his image at home, but it also says that he is accepted by the biggest Muslim so, uh, like celebrities in the world. And that will reach billions of people around the world who would look at Kadyrov a little differently. So it's fascinating that Khabib is allowing himself to do this. Some people would say, well, Khabib might not have a choice. He is technically very close to Chechnya. My argument is whatever pressure Kadyrov attempts to post on, on Khabib, it's nothing compared to what Khabib can do in return in the sense that Khabib, and that if Khabib decides that he is opposed to Kadyrov or that he is not, is not a supporter of Kadyrov, then Kadyrov's plans of border, border changes in, 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 in Dagestan and to get more land for Chechnya, this border demarcation thing that's going on right now, it, it, would, never, it would never happen because he needs the support of the Dagestani people who are more likely to support someone like Khabib. They're not interested in dealing with Chechnya. Well, Khabib right now is just trying to smooth the path between both, the, between both sides. So it, I think that Kadyrov is also in a, in a difficult situation because he can't just go and assassinate Khabib. That's not how this works. Even for someone like Kadyrov, he cannot just simply do things like that. Khabib is way too much of a celebrity figure and way too significant. And if people actually followed the political climate and the political scene in Chechnya and Dagestan, you'd realize that Kadyrov has already attempted to intimidate the Dagestanis and the Ingushetians by going into their actual, like their actual uh, republics with, with his own group of people to sort of intimidate specific towns, and each town stands up to him. These places do not just like sit back silently. He has managed to, to steal the soul of Chechnya and their will to protest him, but he has not been able to do that with the rest of the North Caucasus, who have an incredible history of standing up to oppressors like like Russia. So they will not they will not bug, they will not blink twice when they or think twice at all when they when they see Kadyrov coming across. It's it's much more trouble, much more difficult than people think. This whole idea that Khabib has no choice, it's utter nonsense. Yeah, I, like the longer I thought about it and the more I read your work, the more I realised that I'm not sure Khabib actually realises how powerful he is politically, right? Mm -hmm. And the, 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 so the anecdote I usually use to explain this is I was in New York at the press conference when Conor and Khabib were on the stage at the Radio mm -hmm. City Music Hall and that was when Conor pushed the glass in front of Khabib and he started to pretty much insult uh, him for being a Muslim and calling him backward, etc, etc, mm -hmm. right? Now, I left there. I was with Noel McGrath from um, Off the Ball 
and uh, I was jumping on a train basically and getting back to the airport and I came back to Sweden the same night so I sent the video off and I was on a plane overnight then and by the time I got back to Sweden to Stockholm I went to bed and I got up and I went up to the local soccer ground it's just at the top of my street here is the local sort of soccer field mm-hmm. and a lot of kids who live around here would be the children of Muslim parents from maybe Somalia or from uh, Iran or from Kurdistan or that kind of thing and I only walked in the gate that night Karim and people were saying Connor shouldn't have done that Connor shouldn't have done that man and these were kids who for the last three or four years have only ever spoken to me about how great Connor was but Connor crossed the line and in the choice between their brother in the faith being Habib and Connor the man that they looked up to as this brash successful man there was no contest right you know Connor's lost Mm -hmm. to all these now Connor's lost to a bunch of kids in a Stockholm suburb he is lost de facto to a billion Muslims around the world. But with that comes this enormous political power that Khabib now has. And again, I just wonder if Khabib is aware of that. I, you know, because to me, he strikes me as a guy who's very much about the clan first and foremost, about the family first and foremost, and about his own career. But I wonder if he doesn't realize that with Erdogan and these kind of guys, that, you know, if he realizes his value to them, do you ever see him maybe becoming a political figure in his own right when his career is over? I absolutely do. And this is, again, another reason why I think the question is so complex is because while I think he might not be, and I agree with you, Philip, I don't think he's aware of just how powerful he is on a world scale right now, on, on, the, on the global stage. I can't help but think that the way he's handling his public persona in Dagestan, the way he stands up to specific issues and how he's opposed the, the, the government on certain things and for instance, the issue with the play and, and, and the rap concert. This all feels to me like someone who's building towards a political career. And he's already been offered roles in the Dagestani government. And he's been told by Putin, I can't remember what the quote was from Putin saying that you'll definitely have a future in, 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 in our government in the, future, in, in the future. But that's there's no doubt about it, because even Fedor Emelianenko, who's the closest thing we can compare to in terms of like Russian superstardom for, for mixed martial arts, he ended up with a very cozy... Uh, cushion-like position in, in the government afterwards. Khabib, on the other hand, I think he will do so, but I highly doubt he would end up joining the Kremlin. I truly believe he would join the Dagestani government. Mm-hmm. I really believe that, and I mean, which is not which is not autonomous. Let me just stress that right now. But I think his bigger concern is dealing with his own republic. I think he feels much stronger about his republic, as I would too, than he does about Russia proper. Fair enough. He's, for instance, already attempted to get, uh, and I, I believe he has managed to negotiate this with Putin, an increased budget for Dagestan in terms of education. That's a phenomenal step that he took. If this is true and it actually goes forward and there's actually new schools built and education rises and improves in Dagestan, well, that's a phenomenal move. And that's using your political power and your sway for good. But at the same time, it's very difficult for me to just think that he is simply just taking these, these steps irrationally or just without really considering the consequences to me this feels like someone who is ramping up for a political career once he is done with mixed martial arts i really i really believe that by the time he turns 30 32 33 and he's done with he's done with the sport i really believe that he's going to transition to to some sort of role in the dagestani government whether it be as a sports minister or whether it be as an advisor to the actual head of dagestan it'll be something of those roles and i think I think he will take it from there. Who knows what happens after that?
These are enormously complex questions which you've written superbly about in the past. Could I ask you a little bit about your process? Because uh, you come from Egypt, uh, you speak excellent English, I assume you speak your Arabic is even better than that. But you know, when you're investigating things that are happening in Dagestan, in Chechnya, in Russia, how do you get by the language barriers? How do you get the information and the sources that you need to write these stories? I got very lucky when it comes to covering Russia because I had the opportunity in, in 2014, I interviewed Vadim Finkelstein, the, the founder of M1 Global, the person who is infamous in the UFC for the rivalry with Dana White over Fedor Emelianenko. But I interviewed him in 2014. It was supposed to be a one-off thing. And during the interview, there was a translator on the line who agreed, who, who told me, oh, by the way, Vadim really likes the sound of your voice. Would you like to be an English commentator for M1? I thought, I mean... Okay, as long as I'm not doing my role as a journalist there, that's fine. Let, let's try this. Why not? It's 2014. I hadn't really built or developed my career in mixed martial arts yet. I'm like, fine, let's try something new. And so I did. I went to Russia 12 times between 2014 and 2016. And what's, it started off innocent. It started off as me just going to do the commentary and to learn about a new country. But it didn't take long for me to go out to dinner with people and sit with fighters who would tell me stories. Stories about corruption in Russia. And who is actually running mixed martial arts? They tell me, oh, well, this promotion, you know, you have to look into this billionaire and see who he's tied to. And then that's when I learned about Chechnya. That, like, you see that there's this Chechen guy in uh, Kadyrov. He's about to start a new promotion. You should probably watch out for that. So I got the word that he was starting his, his Ahmad MMA promotion well before he actually started it. I mean, he started it in the end of 2015. I remember having that conversation maybe in February of 2015 in Moscow. When I first heard, oh, by the way, this guy, he's really, really bad. He's about to start a promotion. You might, you might be interested in this. So I had the upper leg in that sense. And then whenever I had questions, I either would call these people back in Russia that I knew or talk to them or have them direct me to someone who can help. And being, having the opportunity to go to Russia that many times, I did pick up a bit of the language. And because I wasn't there advertising myself as a journalist, people trusted me very quickly. I never reported anything or, or used anybody's name without their permission. So I'm not saying I fooled anybody. But there was this idea that when I was out to dinner with people, they didn't have to worry about me. They're like, oh, I've seen you before. You're the commentator. All right, let's have this conversation. And it's going to be perfectly fine. And they just lead me in the right direction. And through there, I was able to build sources. I mean, at one point, I was writing a story about Amar Sulaev, who, who, who was a UFC fighter who went on to become an alleged hitman before dying of cancer just a few years ago. And I was covering the story when he was still alive. And I just so happened to be, I think, in Orenburg, Russia. And one of the people from M1 was like, Karim, I saw that you reported on this story before. I've got a surprise for you. I'm thinking, what, what, what surprise could you possibly have for me? And he leads me down into the dining room and sits me down in front of this other guy. And he's like, by the way, this was Amar's coach for like 10 years. You want to talk to somebody who knows him well? This is the person. And, and I, I, couldn't, I just couldn't believe it. I just sat there for basically, well, I can't even remember now, half an hour, 45 minutes, just asking questions with, with my friend from Ewan, just translating for me. So I had these incredible opportunities. And like I said, I got very, very lucky that I was able to have access to a place like Russia and so many of its different republics over two, over two years and 12 trips. So that really helped build my understanding. And from there, I've been able to, from working at a distance, because one of the places I'm not allowed to go back to, or I will not be able to easily access again, is the Russian Federation, unfortunately, uh, at least not in its current state. But uh, now I just have to rely on those sources and rely on the knowledge I've built over that period of time and taking it from there. But now there's a lot less original reporting as much as I am building on the analysis and writing essays and sort of, as you said earlier, connecting those dots for people. Hmm. 
Do you find that uh, things have obviously changed then? Back then, people were prepared to talk to you. You were the commentator. You were calling the fights on the mic. And, but you've developed since then uh, into a sort of a very hard-hitting journalist who leaves no stone unturned. Uh, do, are your sources still as willing to talk to you or do they feel that it's dangerous now to confide in you? Because there's two sides to every coin, right? When Anytime there's any sort of injustice or corruption, there's always somebody who's not at the trough. There's always somebody who wants to be at the trough and they are always willing to talk. They may not go on the record. They may not go on there with their name, but they'll always point you in a particular direction. Do you still have access to those people or do you find yourself being closed off from them now as time goes on? I used to have, I'll say this, I used to have access to a lot more, a lot more of them. Uh, there's only about a handful left that I can that I can contact. And even from those handful, only two or so remain in the positions they once were. Mm. So it's not even just about me losing the context or them being upset with what I wrote. It's a matter of everybody moving on in the first place into different careers and different different roles. I still happen to have one one source in Chechnya that's helped a lot and a tremendous amount with the work I've done. I would never have been able to build the 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 work general the, the reporting I've I've been able to do on Chechnya on Kadyrov without the help of specific sources who have stuck out to this day, sending pictures at the right time, doing the exact things I needed, and got and I got that help. But when it comes to other places in Russia, I've unfortunately there's been there's been let's not get into the details of what's happened with the sources, but there are definitely examples where people are not happy with the work I'm doing, and you end up losing a source. But that's that's part of that's part of life. That's what happens. <laughs> unfortunately, I can't I can't stop the reporting I'm doing. I can't I can't not report on Kadyrov or report on incidents with Putin just because or a specific one of the things that really upset people I'll give you an example just now that I'm thinking about it is is when I started writing about the rise of uh, white supremacy and mixed martial arts fight clubs in Russia mm. and uh, Ukraine and Poland and other places as well now that really 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 upset some of the people that I was that I was coming because they're like this is not what we thought you were covering we thought you were a politics guy doing the main the big picture now you're just criticizing Russia and criticizing the way we are and I thought how are we even arguing this this is white supremacy it's the, <laughs> white supremacy is a problem everywhere I don't care if it's you Russian you have your culture I don't care I'm sorry like there are certain things I am I, I, I like to think that I'm culturally aware. I like to think that I'm empathetic. But there are certain things I do not have respect for anywhere in the world. Abuse of human rights and, and the suggestion that culture varies in different places. So in, in some part of the world, I'm allowed to treat women terribly and the patriarchy is okay, while in other places it's not. That's utter nonsense. That's rubbish. Mm. Human rights is a universal thing. And I will not show any respect to a government that abuses that anywhere around the world. It's as simple as that. Mm. Uh, how do you find when you talk to editors and you pitch these stories to them do you do they actually understand what you're talking about because again you're, you're talking about things on a very granular level you know uh, about the Caucasus and the sort of splits between the different republics and that or you know are they willing to support your work are they willing to, to give you the resources you need or do you have to fight for that uh it's it's been it's been a process unfortunately i've had and with different outlets i, I changed my approach for instance i'll start with i'll start with the first one i was always with was bloody elbow on vox media bloody elbow gives me the freedom gives me the resources gives me what i need 
to get the job done, gives me the time, gives me everything I need to get my job done. And that's where I'm able to take to, to work on that granular level because the reporting has, is on the site from 2015 onwards. You just have to sort of backtrack through the articles and you'll see all the information. You'll even see the development of my way of thinking and sort of um, me sort of really cementing my ideas and the ideology and my understanding of these topics. You can actually see that development from 2015 onwards on Bloody Elbow itself. So that site, I owe a lot of my, of my really of my experience, my success to Bloody Elbow. But when it came to trying to present this to other websites, I had to take a sort of a more macro approach. So when I went to The Guardian, I had to give them big ideas at first. I had to tell them, or I had to use an example. For instance, I was not able to really discuss Kadyrov on The Guardian because there was, it was like, where were we going to start with Kadyrov? Where were we going to start exactly? But when he showed up at a UFC event in Moscow, there was my angle right there. Yeah. So you start with that. You set the scene with why is Kadyrov at a UFC event in Moscow? And then you start to explain the relationship between the two, who Kadyrov is, how he relates to mixed martial arts. And voila, you have an article on MMA and politics on The Guardian about Kadyrov. But it, it w I had to learn that sort of uh, strategy of how am I going to, what perspective and what angle and, and what approach am I going to take on these different websites? Deadspin was another one of the websites that gave me the opportunity to really expand on stories. I did some of my best reporting on Kadyrov with Deadspin, another website that gave me the resources and believed in the work I was doing, so much so that they were happy to publish it. They believed in the sources I had because some of the information I posted, I told them, you're just going to have to trust the sources I have because I'm not giving away my sources. Yeah. And it worked. And it worked. But other places like Foreign Policy was, was another great example of a place that you had to find an angle first to get the topic. So it was the World Cup, it was Mo Salah and Kadyrov. Mm -hmm. Why is Egypt training at, in Chechnya? What does Kadyrov want from the World Cup? Those were the questions I had to think about, those large-scale questions, and then I could answer them mm -hmm. on those sites. But it's very difficult to go to a place like uh, even The Guardian or something and, and give them a very small concept or, or this, this latest incident in Kadyrov's craziness and expect them to be like, okay, this makes sense, go into it. Mm. I often find it's very difficult as well, when you know a subject as deeply as you know this subject, uh, and then you have to try to get it into a sort of an elevator pitch, you know, a couple of sentences mm -hmm. that's going to explain to an editor. Um, you've mentioned that a lot of the editors that you seem to have worked with, they've backed you to the hilt and that kind of thing. But if you don't mind me asking, Kareem, is it possible for you to make a decent living uh, doing this? Because I've heard of a couple of instances lately where people have done absolutely brilliant work. And then at the end of it, if they haven't agreed a price beforehand, they wind up being very, very disappointed by the check that is their reward for it. Do you find that you can make a living doing this and that you have what you need to do the work? It can always be better. I'll say that I have been, because of the niche I have formed, I have been extremely lucky. Yes, I can make a very, very decent living on my own based on my, my employment with Bloody Elbow and Vox Media and the freelance work and the contracting work I do elsewhere. I do, I do live quite comfortably and, 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 to, and make a decent living. But there were two, two things I had to learn very quickly. One of them is one, one that you mentioned. Agree on a price beforehand and know your value and fight for your value. I knew that I presented a political sports niche that would be interesting given some of the topics, like especially when we we're talking the World Cup, we we're talking these things that we knew the hits were going to be there and you knew people would be interested and you knew nobody else is going to write it as good as you are or nobody else has the knowledge base to do it as quickly because they won't have to do days and days of research beforehand. I have, I have the information. All I have to do is put me in front of a computer and I'll start typing. Mm. <laughs> it's that simple. So I knew my value and in many cases I was able to get my value.
But that's because at the same time, those editors believed in the work and knew what was coming. So I got very, very lucky. I, I know I know even some of my very close friends who from the exact same website can't get the, can't get the figure I was able to get in certain cases. Yeah. And I won't say it's the same all the time. There are sites that pay terribly. There are sites I want to work for that pay terribly because they are big outlets. Yeah. Let's not even have to get into names, but I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, Philip. Like these fantastic outlets who think, well, because we're such a big name, we're doing you a favor. Why do we need to pay you more than a couple of hundred dollars? Yeah. You know what I mean? So, so there are all those examples. You have to go by that. The, the biggest problem I say, it's not so much the decent living or not decent living. For me, the thing that stresses me out the most is the lack of stability. Yeah. Is the fact that every month I am not making the exact same figure I'm making the month before. Or it could be more, it could be less. That's the thing you don't know. You don't know until your, your month is done and you see how much work you've gotten out in the end. And then what about the freelancers who, or sorry, the, the outlets who just drag you around and don't pay for six months. I had one example of that this year. I wrote the article, I think, in November, and I didn't get I didn't get paid for it until May. It was nonsense. I couldn't believe it. I'm, I just, I'm so thankful it wasn't a significant figure. Yeah. Sports on Earth, which is now shut down, once upon a time, they owed me a $3,000 check, and it took them four months to get that. And because, I mean, I'm, I'm a writer. I, that, I had to basically live on credit card at that point and then pay on top of paying off my credit card debt, pay off the interest. Yeah. On top of it, so I lost out working for them at that time, if that makes sense. So that's the kind of stuff that drives me insane. It's okay. that lack of stability. And it's this idea that because you're a freelancer, they just not, might not even care about you at all. Not even slightly. About whether you get paid on time, whether you don't. It really depends on the editor you're dealing with. Well, that's the thing. I think if the respect is there, and I think you are the kind of person who's going to have the respect of editors. And if you pick up the phone, I've fought my way to that respect, uh, usually by using legal letters if people don't pay me. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I'll admit to you now, my friend, I'm after being a month in France. And, you know, there's, I'd say I'm owed the guts of about $10,000 by, by various different people at the moment. And that better come mm -hmm. in pretty damn quickly because, uh, yeah. you know, there's a mortgage to be paid this month as well. And that sense of instability, um, I think it's my wife's cousin. Well, you know, every time she comes over for dinner, she's always talking about passive income, you know, so if Karim mm -hmm. Zidane was to write a book that was to continually sell for the next 50 years, you know, that'd be great because you'd have a pension, you have a regular income. But that unfortunately is not the way our business tends to work. Um, could I ask you, if you were to look into your sort of crystal ball and how things are developing, it, both in your career generally and in the sphere that you currently work in, I'd imagine you're the kind of guy, if, you know, if you were to change tack and only work with politics or only work with human rights issues, you could probably do just as well. Where, where do you see this going? Do you still enjoy the work you're doing are you still prepared to take the risks that are necessary to do that work and will you still be able to make a living of it uh, out of it in five or ten years time wow that's this might be my favorite question yet so uh hmm gotta think about this one for a second i here's my issue with my with my work right now i'll start with that i don't feel like i'm being challenged enough it's come to a point now because remember what I just said a short while ago was I know the stuff. I just need to get in front of the computer and start writing. Yeah. There's, there's a lack of new challenge and new ideas for me. And I, I'm looking for new challenges in life, whether they be within my, my intersection of sports and politics or beyond it. Where I and, and here's my issue of continuing to be able to make this, this income. I've thought about this long and hard is that how many outlets are there? especially in the MMA sphere, say I was to continue covering a lot of MMA and politics and stuff, how many outlets are there really in MMA that are going to be willing to have a liability like me, are willing to go to bat for me and risk their credentials and risk 
uh, in general, just hate from, from fans who don't like my work, whether it be conservatives, whether it be whoever that don't like my work. Are you prepared for all that? And I, I can understand the sites that don't want to. I can understand the sites that just want to do your routine uh, fight tweet coverage. But I have no interest in that. That bores me to death. It has bored me to death for years. The sports politics niche shit saved me from those Saturday nights of sitting, typing results and stuff like that. I can't, I can't do that. It's not, it's not me. It has never been me. I'm not a beach reporter. So that's something I will never become. So either, and the same thing goes with politics. What I would love, I love writing, Philip. I never want to stop writing. Whether I become an essayist, an op-ed columnist, whatever it is, I'm looking for a new challenge. I'm in the process. It's funny you mentioned books because I'm in the process of thinking about books. I love writing fiction. I have a book of short stories I have completed, but I haven't shipped around or shopped around or even really shopped around my short stories. I just love writing short stories. I'm in the process of writing a fiction novel. I've written one practice one that I'm not happy with. I'm about to start another one. And nonfiction book ideas as well. The concept of sports and politics, whether it be in martial arts or in, in other, in other uh, intersections, I think is fascinating. And I think that there is a a market for that as well. So I think that's probably in my future. So if you ask me what I'm most interested in and what I look forward to the most, it's writing actual books. It's writing stories, whether it be fiction and nonfiction, looking for bigger challenges than sitting down and writing an article that's covering a lot of what I've already covered before or repeating it in a different way or to a new audience. I have to admit I've gotten a little bit bored. And it's, it's the same. There used to be a time where I could get up and sit down on my computer. It was the first thing that I'd open my eyes seven or eight or whenever I open up my eyes and I'm ready to go. I'm ready to start my day and it doesn't end until it ends. Mm. Now it's a struggle to stay by that computer all day. And I have to admit, a lot of it is the hate. If you see the amounts of messages, I'll wake up. It's difficult to open my Twitter now because I open it to a lot of hate. So I've learned not to even look at my phone when I wake up first thing in the morning because it can set the tone for your day. You want to talk about getting up on the right, wrong side of the bed? Twitter is exactly that. Especially for someone like me, Twitter is exactly that. So I have to stay off Twitter for a long time, and I get this deep sense in myself, like, oh, do I really have? Is this is this really worth it yeah. in the end? So I, the the problem is, I feel strongly about these thoughts. I wouldn't write something, and this is something you can just believe about me is that I would not write something I don't believe in. Mm. So I do believe in the intersection of sports and politics. I do believe in the work I'm doing. But I need new challenges, in my opinion. I need, I need how that's going to be achieved, whether it means working for new outlets, whether it means uh, moving on into a different thing entirely or writing actual books and going through that challenge. I'm not quite sure, Phil, but I can tell you that the next few years is, is definitely going to be massive changes coming for me. I, I, I get the feeling from you that you're not the kind of guy who likes to repeat themselves. And, you know, I fully identify with that. I don't know. I've written so many thousand match reports in my life mm -hmm. that I'm just beyond that. And the Women's World Cup was a fascinating one because I was actually there working yeah. for FIFA, the world governing body of soccer. And that was, uh, we have an expression in Irish English called taking the soup. In the famine in the 1850s, if you took the soup, it meant that you converted from Catholicism to Protestantism. But you took the soup mm -hmm. and you survived the famine. Where as many people would have preferred to stay true to their faith and just died of hunger, you know? And I kind of felt a little bit like I was taking the soup by going and working for FIFA. And yet it gave me a, a different perspective because you are much closer to the athletes, albeit in controlled circumstances. You can't do journalism there. You create content, you know, that's the difference. But mm -hmm. I, I fully get what you're getting at. And that whole thing of, you know, I can never see you, uh, for all the brilliant pieces that you've written, 
about Khalidov and about uh, Nurmagomedov and that kind of thing. I can see writing pieces in the future about them, but not in the same way and not featuring the same information. So, you know, that whole idea of having a new perspective, something new to offer your audience, not just does it sort of make you unique, but it also makes the, sort of the experience of reading and seeing what you do yeah, unique as well. Uh, I've one final question to you. I'm going to wish you the best of luck with all those books. Sign me up for those books. I'll buy any of them, by the way. <laughs> do you ever see a, a time in your life after doing the kind of reporting that you've done over the last five or six years do you ever see a time in your life where you live it and not have to look over your shoulder i certainly hope so i certainly hope so because living the like living like this is i i think people don't understand that it's not just worrying about going to to ufc events or not showing up it's the idea that i have to be careful with what pictures i post of myself people i take the time to look at my twitter account and you tell me what you can tell about me about the private karim's event on, on my Twitter account, and you and the true answer is probably nothing. Why? Because I've done I've had to be I have to be like that. I have to make sure people don't know where I am or where I'm traveling to. I'm getting on a plane tomorrow, but nobody knows where because I don't I don't tell people because I'm terrified right, to an extent. I really am. You don't know what's coming and you don't know where, and I don't want to live like that. That's for sure. I do not want to live having to look over my shoulder. I don't want to live coming into my apartment building and looking around every time and trying to see where the elevator is or when I travel to specific countries that I should not be in, having to worry even more about that. It's not fun. It's not, an, it's not a nice way to live. I got married last year, Philip, and I never even published the photos. I did not publish the location. When the people who were invited, and there were people from the MMA community who were invited and did show up uh, to the wedding, they were told beforehand not to publish where it was as well or when it was happening. This is the kind of life I have to live, and I'll tell you this right now. There's no glory in it. There's no heroics in it. There's no incredible sort of romanticism of this. Let me tell you that right now. It's none of that whatsoever. It's you just questioning yourself day in and day out, questioning why you do this, questioning is it worth it, questioning the respect you're getting from people, because if you're getting paid enough, that's the life you live. You're just you're not only having to deal with others second-guessing you, you have to deal with yourself second-guessing yourself and your decisions that you've taken over the past few years. I certainly hope I don't have to live like this for much longer. Well, I certainly hope that both the people that you are writing for and the people that you are writing about realise the service that you are providing to people all over the world with the reporting that you're doing. And I will echo that. I didn't know you personally uh, at all. I only knew you as you know, as through the articles that you've written. But I am delighted that over the last sort of 48 minutes of talking to you that I have gotten to know you. And I hope that we'll have a chance to get to know each other a lot better in the future. Karim Zidane, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you. Thank you, Philip. I certainly, certainly do. We do get the chance to meet and get to know each other because you're certainly one of the few, one of the few people that I know in this space that I would love to sit and have that drink with and and get to talking for hours. Because this 48 minutes, this is like the starter of what we could usually do together. I'm sure. We've only just begun. <laughs>